Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I have the pleasure to welcome two incredible guests, Alice Schmidt and Claudia Winkler. Alice is an MBA lecturer, an advisor to the European Commission, and non-profit organizations like Extinction Rebellion, Protect Our Winters, and the chair of the board of Endiva EV. Claudia is the CEO and co-founder of Good Mobile, Europe's first B Corp certified telecom provider and a founding partner of Adjacent Possible Network. Let's face it, we don't handle water in a vacuum. As significant and crucial as the water industry may be, it is only a piece of the puzzle when it comes to sustainability. For instance, you may have heard on this microphone or all around the places how committed we shall all be to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But did you ever hear that doing so represents a $12 trillion growth opportunity? That's the kind of fact you discover when you zoom out and adopt a system thinking. This is something Alice and Claudia advocate for with a lot of backgrounds, frameworks and stories in the sustainability puzzle, a must-read book they just published, exploring how we can work together to achieve sustainability and beyond. In this week's discussion, you'll learn how the fossil fuel industry received $420 billion a year of subsidies over the past decade, or how we'll produce more food between now and 2050 than in all the last 8,000 years combined. But Alice and Claudia will also reveal how our systems must evolve, how even recent concepts like the triple bottom may already be outdated while sharing very actionable bits of advice you can start using today. In our conversation, we also discuss how, as uncool as it sounds, some of the solutions for the future can be found in the past, how the right message probably rather is save ourselves than save the planet, how until recently abusing nature has served human progress, how we are 7 billion creative people on this planet that could do much to make it a better world for all of us, how sustainability may not be enough given the point we've reached and what to do instead, but also greenwashing, apocalypse porn, need for regulations, crafting the right stories, culture as the force bottom line, and so much more. This entire interview is honestly an eye-opener, so I shall swiftly shut up to get into the deep dive. But right before, I need you to spread the word. Please share this episode with two of your friends, grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Alice. Hi, Claudia. Welcome to the show. Hi. Great to meet you. Nice meeting you. I'm going to propose you to make a collective postcard because you're two on one, but I think you're in the same city, at least. So you're in Vienna. What can you tell us about Vienna that people would ignore? Ignore or should not ignore? Oh, that they should not ignore and that they would be ignoring for now. Okay, I start, Alice, because I'm fast. So it's like St. Stephen's Cathedral, the Riesenrad, Schönbrunn Castle, Hofburg. So we have a lot of classical sites and now the more underground things are with Alice. So maybe she has some special tips. 
<laughs> well, obviously, I mean, the coffee, the literature, I think also the greenery. And, you know, there is a sort of nascent arts and culture scene. It's a bit more underground, so definitely place to visit. And Vienna has the best water, I think, in Europe, the best sort of tap water. We're very proud of that. So come for that. If you come for nothing else, come for water. Well, that's a really good reason. And I think we are going to come to the cafe in just a couple of minutes. But right before that cafe session, I have to explain everyone that um, you both wrote a, a wonderful book, a Sustainability Puzzle, and that's the, the root for our discussion today. A book I just told you uh, before we started to me, it's, it's a page turner. It's a lot of valuable stuff inside. And yeah, that's a bit the reason for me to step a bit aside from the usual water topic and to take a bit of a system approach that we will be discussing as well to the sustainability topic. But right before we dive into the deep matter of, of your book, I'd like to get to know you, both of you, a bit better. And I have to say, usually I don't take notes for that session because I think I can remember everything my guests have done. For both of you, it's not the case. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to read because it, it's really an impressive path. Let me start with you, Alice. You've been working with UN agencies, the African Union, the World Bank, many NGOs. And today, when you don't give lectures at the University of Vienna or you run a sustainability consultancy, you're working for the European Commission. And that's where, to me, it starts to be a bit funny. And you're going to tell me if it is or not. Because on one end, when you tell me the, the European Commission, I, I see that as very, very, very serious, you know. And then on the other hand, you talk a lot about in the book, you're also advising Extinction Rebellion which is actually somehow the, the, the opposite with this tool of civil disobedience. So how do you juggle between those two words, the formal, the informal? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, they're both serious, right? Extinction Rebellion is also really serious, right? Where it's clearly different is sort of the ambition and the, the work style, right? And perhaps to just bit more background. When I first started, I sort of my career, I actually started working in business, right? I have a business degree. But then I pretty quickly realized that it wasn't for me to just, you know, do some kind of steep vertical career, so to speak. I wasn't interested in that. I was much more interested in this broader um, sort of horizontal yeah, career, uh, as you could call it, to really get to understand this bigger picture, to work across geographies, across, across sectors, across different types of institutions. Uh, and that's really me. And that's also where, you know, there's a great link, of course, with uh, the book, this sustainability puzzle. And I think without having this, this broad experience, I couldn't have contributed what I contributed to the book or written it in, in that way. Personally, I'd get bored working, you know, just for one or the other. But I do recognize that it's really important for some people to really, really focus as well. And can you tell us a bit about, about what you do with Extinction Rebellion? One of the things I really care about is for organizations, any kind of organization, to really measure their sustainability impact. And that's actually how the Extinction Rebellion sort of got in touch with me. In fact, actually, their you know, former head of finance was a student of mine, an MBA student of mine. And he knew I was doing that kind of stuff because I talk about my sort of my professional experience and basically I've been trying to help them to set up a system that would measure their impact uh, in terms of getting the word out, etc. Yeah. And of course, what I do with the commission is sometimes also about accountability and, you know, evaluating the impact of programs. But it's, of course, much more broad, more political and so on. You can imagine. Talking about you, Claudia, now you're a social innovator, an entrepreneur and a serial founder. You first had an amazing path on the traditional side of telecoms before shaking things up. And you talk about it 
as well in the book. You established Europe's first B Corp certified telecom provider. I was wondering, how do you decide one day to cross the mirror and to say, I go from conventional to uh, sustainable? You know how I'm now opposing sustainable to conventional. That's maybe not the right way to do it. But what happened to you all of a sudden in 2016? Yeah, when I was listening to Alice, I think one thing we have in common is that we have a broad range of interest. For Alice, it's doing both at the same time. For me, I'm rather a 100% or 1,000% person. I have a lot of energy and I love to put the energy on one project. So, But it was really an interesting journey also when I like reflect on it, how I suddenly became from a successful corporate executive a social entrepreneur, because this is quite a big bridge to cross, honestly. So uh, I was trained in business. Traditionally, I was very ambitious. So at the age of 32, as a female, I reached the board of an international telco company, which was quite revolutionary back then. So we were working in eight markets in, the, in Europe, CE region, and I totally enjoyed my career. And I always had the feeling telecommunication is adding value. It's bringing together people, it's connecting people, and I always felt I had a purpose in my life. But, you know, like at some point of time in Europe, uh, the telecommunication market got saturated. We have nearly 100 or even more than 100% penetration in mobile and internet. So everybody's basically somehow connected to the web, to communication. And for me, this was a turning point. How do I want to spend the rest of my life? Do I want to optimize telco companies, making shareholders richer? And for me, it was like, if I have energy, I want to dedicate it to something that's contributing to our future. And... You know, like the first step was a interesting one. I decided to start social innovation and I chose social innovation because I was quite familiar with innovation and technological innovation is something I did for 20 years. So I thought it's going to be easy, you know, like I do a bit of social innovation and then let's see what happens. And actually this totally changed my path. I got exposed to different opinions. I got into this cross-sector, cross-dimensional thinking and I got so many impulses and learned that there's so much more than being focused on your results and maximizing shareholder value. And that was for me basically the step, the beginning of this journey. And now we do a lot of things. So I think the most interesting thing or the most daring thing we did establishing a sustainable mobile operator, but actually we found companies in various fields where we have the feeling with our experience, we can contribute to a sustainable future. So we also run an platform for engagement, civil society engagement with Caritas Austria, for example. We do consulting in the field of sustainability for established companies or in the field of digitalization for companies, uh, for organizations in the social field. So I think I do whatever where I have a feeling I can lever my know-how and contribute. So it's wide, but also sometimes very focused because when I do things, I do them 1000%. Well, of course, I have to link into that because when I do things, I do them a thousand percent too. <laughs> but I want to say one thing because my experience was a little bit similar because when I first you know, started working, I was with companies like Coca-Cola, etc. And I was working in the Central Eastern Europe, Europe department. And that was, you know, as you can imagine, about 20 years ago. And at the time, a lot of these countries were actually quite poor. And I was tasked to basically sell more Coke or sell more dishwashing detergent to these markets and I very quickly realized that that wasn't the product that they actually needed. And so I thought, how can I use my, you know, business, marketing, whatever skills to actually sell, yeah, quotation marks, something that the world needs. And that's then how I moved into, you know, international development, education, et cetera. It's an interesting pattern. And you both mentioned many elements which are going to come back into our conversation, I guess, this shareholder economy versus stakeholder economy. You alluded to uh, the telecom coverage, I think that's a stat from your book that 96% of the world is connected to telecom and that is probably 
the first network. And it's something we've covered quite several times on that microphone because the reason why we can leverage distributed treatments in, in the water and, uh, and decentralized solutions and digital solution is because everywhere in the world there is telecom access. So all of those are feeding into the same system approach, which is at the heart of what you're defending in the book. But I'd like to start that story just a bit before the beginning of your book, because your book opens with uh, your Optimist Cafe venture. And you're going to tell me in a second what this Optimist Cafe is, but I'm wondering what happened just before that Optimist Cafe. How did your two paths cross? How did you meet each other? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because we both have, I mean, we, we have a lot of sort of common acquaintances, um, you know, we sort of we're from similar parts of Vienna. And actually those go back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, partly. But it wasn't until about two years ago, or actually in late 2019, that someone mentioned Claudia to me in a sustainability context. And, you know, that person said, hey, you guys should meet. And I was like, yeah, sounds interesting. And then I, I think I forgot Claudia's name. <laughs> and a few days later, I was at a party. And actually, I think you had just left the party, Claudia, uh, because you had to take care of the kids. But your husband was still there. And I you know, ended up talking to him. And I was like, OK, right, I, I really need to talk. We really need to talk. And so we did. I think that was in yeah, late 2019, early 2020. And uh, it was fascinating because we discovered that despite coming from relatively different backgrounds still, right, or very different viewpoints coming at sustainability from a very different angle, we have a lot in common. And we even found out that 20 years ago, we both studied at the University of Technology, Sydney, which is rare. I don't think there are that many people in Austria who can say that. So we were quite happy to find that out. Yeah. So this meetup leads to the Optimist Cafe. It was a bit different. So actually, Alice and me had had cafe in winter. It was already 2020. So I think it was February, shortly before the lockdown that we finally managed to meet. And we were having coffee and it was really nice discussion. And yeah, we, we started to stay in touch more or less. And the Optimist Cafe actually was something that started right after the lockdown. It was in Vienna, we had a lockdown starting, I think, mid-March, like most of us. And it was a very strict lockdown. So from one day to the other, you couldn't leave the house, you had to stay home. And it hit all of us, I think, all over the globe. Uh, some were in the beginning a bit more enthusiastic and others were quite down. And we had quite some friends that were down. Maybe they were not harmed yet, but they didn't, you know, like like the feeling of being not able to move. And this negative thought actually got at us. And this is why we got together and said, we have to do something that's bringing positivity back. We are optimistic people, even if the situation might be shitty, Let's do something about it. And we said, well, you know, we all were new to this whole online tools. We didn't do that much on, in, in private before. Let's do a virtual cafe. Normally I go in Vienna every Friday and Thursday in the morning. I go to Cafe Honig in the 7th District. I sit there. I meet people who contact me via LinkedIn and I have coffee and, you know, like grow my network, talk to people, exchange thoughts. And I totally love that. And I totally missed that. It was already week three or four of the lockdown. And then we said, let's give it a try. We put it out on uh, LinkedIn. And we said, whoever wants to come should come. And it was really amazing because, you know, like we opened it up and then there were people from the Ukraine popping up, from Czech Republic, from, you know, like all across Europe. And we're like, okay. And we started discussing what sustainability or what would the, the crisis a chance, what, what kind of topics should we cover? And it was really interesting because there was some kind of menu we created together. It was the first time we used the whiteboard also. So we tried to put the whiteboard. What, what kind of things do we want to have on the menu? And it was more fun than any plan. 
but the topics that popped up there were actually the start of the sustainability puzzle, if I now like look back at it, because the people brought up topics like sustainable supply chains, like circularity, like climate action, like sustainable consumption and stuff like that. And so we took this and said every week we're going to address one of those topics. Let's see who we can find, suggest somebody who speaks to the topic, and then we invited them and just opened up the mic every Friday morning and said, okay, let's talk about whatever comes up. And we really had interesting discussions. I think all of us came from different points of view and we learned a lot. Some of us were experts in one dimension, others in others. And I, you know, like I always get emotional when I talk about that because this was such a great open learning journey. You were not, you know, like you didn't need to be experts to join, but you could take something away and you could ask questions. And yeah, we, we totally loved that. We did that, I think, even after the end of the lockdown, we continued the first one. So we did it until summer. And at the end of it, we were looking at each other and said, wow, what kind of learning? And one of us, I don't know who it was, said, maybe we should write a book. And we were like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Let's give it a try. And yeah, one year later, we're here and we have our book and we still have our Optimist Cafe community that luckily joined us as our book launch last week in Oxford. And it was also quite emotional seeing those people back after a year. Was it the first time you, you met them physically? I never met them physically. So Alice is one of the few people out of the Optimist Cafe I really ever met in person. One of them, Alexis, uh, I will meet next week for the first time. He's coming from Bratislava for the first time since, you know, like whatever time he's able to travel. So it, it's really funny because you grew some, grow some kind of online community there. And yeah, I'm looking forward. Maybe step by step, we can meet all of them. If I try to take a helicopter view on the book and to say, what is your thesis to defend in the book, given the story of the Optimist Cafe, given the story of the pandemic and the lockdown, I have a bit the feeling that it was about all these people saying, you know, no worries, the pandemic is going to end. And as soon as it ends, we return to life as it used to be. And you're taking the, the counterpoint to that. You're saying, no, wait, that is an opportunity. We can shake things up and we can actually build a new world. Is that a right Summary, would you see it the, the same way? I think that's a great summary. And it is very much where we're coming from, because I think one of the, the first sort of topics or discussions we presented at this cafe was very much around not wasting this crisis, making sure that this suffering hasn't been in vain. And of course, this sentence has been stretched quite a bit since then, but this is still the feeling we have. And I think in the beginning, I mean, um, neither of us ever played down the pandemic at all. But we did initially hope that even more positive would come out of it, right? And we didn't anticipate necessarily that it would, that, you know, in sort of mid 2021, we'd still be in this pandemic, talking about variants and all of that. But this opportunity, that's very much what stayed with us. And it's also, you know, a, a topic that, you know, we started publishing on and, and we, which we understood that really resonated with people. And it was a little bit of a balancing act too, because I know that in, in sort of, you know, obviously when you write a book, you go through several drafts. And in earlier drafts, we had sort of much more focus on this, on this opportunity. And some of our reviewers, right, we sent this to a lot of sort of colleagues and, and you know, friends from the Optimist Cafe for review and for comment. And some really loved this, but others actually felt that was, it was too much. We, you know, that, that was too much. And I think they were absolutely right. And I think where we're today, we kind of struck this balance. And it was also interesting to see when this book would come out, because we always knew we had to wait until the worst, so to speak, is over. We thought the publishing a book about optimism and about opportunities of a crisis as big as COVID 
wouldn't work that well. And so in the end, um, well, the timing was worked well because, of course, we had you know plans to finish the book much, much earlier, as, as people do. I mean, that always happens, I think. But somehow, I think we, we actually uh, really sort of hit this at the, at the right point. So I hope. And that's also the feedback we're getting, right? Like Claudia says, I mean, we do get feedback. Now we start getting feedback from all over, the, all, all over the world. And this opportunity sort of focus is something that resonates with people. I had a discussion on that microphone with uh, Hasmik Barsegian. She's the president of the European Youth Parliament for Water. And she was saying that you have to be unhappy to realize that you were happy. So that you have to see, to, to, to experience the, the absence, to see the presence. And that is also something which is present in your book. You show how, how the scarcity we all faced within the pandemic was, was an electroshock and that something can be born out of it. And now I'll take one of the two water examples that I expect to talk with within our discussion today and then we can discuss about all the rest. But I have to be a bit water centric. Come on. I'm wondering, actually, I ask her the, the, the same, the same thing is the water industry has been resilient. We, don't have stories of people that were out of water, that couldn't flush their toilets because wastewater was no longer collected and treated. And I'm wondering if somehow we didn't miss an opportunity because uh, we don't have that electroshock that some others have experienced. Now I'm, I'm really forcing the trade, but is it that black and white that uh, disruption can create this transformational change? I mean, I'll start on that and maybe Claudia wants to continue after, but I mean, I think very much this experience of scarcity of missing some things, but not missing other things has been really, really important, right? And the whole resilience that you point out. And, you know, I mean, we're not water experts, even though I think we mentioned the word water about 140 times in the book or so, because just because it is such an important piece of the puzzle, right? And it is the resource that businesses care the most about, that they worry the most about. I would want to challenge you on that and say, yes, it's true that perhaps in, in, in Western countries we were quite resilient, but I'm not sure if this holds true in lower income contexts necessarily, right? I mean, I do think that the pandemic had some impacts there. We often talk about the collateral damage of all the sort of protective measures that were put in place. And I, I, I don't want this to become too technical, but I think the point, the overarching point here is, and that's also the balance we are trying to strike in this book, is this this mixture between really alerting people to very uncomfortable truths and at the same time instilling in them a sense that this is a crisis we can deal with. The COVID crisis, even though, you know, it's not like we pass it with flying colors, certainly not. Yeah, Global collaboration has to improve much, much more. But we really understood that if, well, I have to use bad language here, if shit hits the fan, <laughs> We can do it. Yeah, apologies for that. But I really think that's what it is um, we're trying to say. We can do it. We can act, get our act together. So so creating this sense of urgency, I think, is absolutely essential. But at the same time, showing not just that we can do it, that we are resilient, but how we can be resilient. I think that's really key. And if I can add on that, just because you didn't have, you had a shock. You know, like, even if you were not in the water industry, was not in the center of the shock, there was a system shock that was, you know, like, a shock for all of us. And looking at it, how resilient the industry is can also give you strength for the future. So that's also in personal change and change, cult cultural change. It's always like feeling that you were resilient in a certain situation gives you the strength and the power to master the next crisis shock or whatever. So even if you did not have a shock, you, you were able to master whatever was out there, which could have affected your industry as well. So I think it had an effect on your industry, maybe not that visible as in others, And you could also use it as optimists positive, in a positive way in saying we manage that crisis, even if it didn't affect us that much. But for the next one, we can do the same. Actually, you, you're mentioning optimism. I think it's, uh, it's important to see it 
at both sides of it because I'd love to to see everything with the optimist side of it and and it's an opportunity and we can do much out of it. I mean, all things considered because it's still a pandemic, but also we could be falling into a major trap or a major pitfall and say, the flight transportation has suffered a lot, fossil fuel has suffered a lot, we, we have to help them a lot. And then we miss that opportunity. So you're showing all the positive side of it. But how do you fight this this other side of the coin? How do you fight this tendency that, hey, maybe uh, Airbus is going to crash and we have to help them out? Maybe uh, Volkswagen is going to crash and we have to help them out? It's, it's stupid examples, really, probably out of context. But just to say, there can be this um, this temptation to use old receipts. But then I'm again on this point of resilience. Resilience is actually the ability to deal with shocks. And the next level would be even anti-fragility in terms of you're not just resilient to shocks, but system shocks are making whatever you do better. There is some easy example of what I mean. It's like if you put a whiskey on a ship and it's shaken up and down, actually it's, get, it's getting better by being shaken up and down. And I think we are at a point of time where there will be a lot of ups and downs. And it's the mindset you face those ups and downs. Is it being shocked, always being resilient, fighting back? Or is it maybe trying to live with the shocks that will be there and trying to adapt to the situation and change your mindset? And I think that's an, imp- an interesting question. So how can we get the majority of people to see the change that we're facing as an opportunity or at least as something that's natural and we all should get accustomed to deal with because these shocks whatever they are will not go away but if we stay in our mindset we will have difficulties if we open up our mindset and say well this is how life is going to be in the future it's easier and i talk a lot of my experience i founded a few startups the startup right is an up and down all the time if you don't adapt to changing situations quickly and this is, becomes your normal, you, you will fail. And I think this is something we can take for all of us. I agree. And then I think what, what you said, Antoine, about this example, right, of all these pull and push factors, you know, that, that start kicking in. Um, you know, you mentioned the Airbus example, the, the flight industry example. We talk a little bit about over-tourism and tourism sort of kicking back in perhaps with much more force than it even was before, even though I think this is one where we don't know yet, the jury's still out. But this is exactly the point we're making, right? This is a complex issue. We're talking with wicked problems and they cannot be solved with one-dimensional reductionist approaches. You always have to look at this bigger picture. We can't, of course, we can't predict the future, but we what we do know is that the only thing that's going to save us is this zooming out before we zoom in. I have a last element of sidetracking here and I bring you back on track after that. But the most shocking statistic that I read in your book is this 330 billions of subsidies to the fossil fuel economy. And I was like, no, it, it's not possible. It must be a typo. I checked on their website and I saw that, hey, it's a good news. It's down because in 2018, it was 440. So it's just crazy. And I, I had this discussion with uh, Julian Kobel and Florian Hebb from the Center for Sustainable Finance of the University of Zurich. And we were comparing with them. Um, they were saying that worldwide, if you look at sustainable investing and look at the portion of it, which is impact investing, impact investing worldwide is about these 300 billions as well. So you have really this pull and push and it's the same balance of force on the two ends. And that means that just a little thing can turn the full table. I mean, it's, it's this full story of a horse race. The horse that wins the race wins by a nose. But that nose makes the full difference. 
Yeah, if I can jump in on that, I think I totally agree with you. It's a balance and you have people on one or situations on one side and then on the other. And it's change management, how we learned it in our corporates all the time. So where do you focus? Do you focus on convincing the people running front or do you focus on the people that, you know, like don't believe who have an opposite opinion? And actually there was some interesting thing I learned. It's not a common common knowledge, but actually the thing you move the people is, yes, of course, you can move the front and the tipping point. But if you forget about the 60% of the Gaussian bell curve in the middle, then actually you're doomed to fail. You know, like if 20% are running and saying, yay, super, but you forget about taking along the middle, it will not happen. So you have to make sure when you work on systems change transformations that you not just, you know, like take the front runners with you, but that you also think how can you make this transformation approachable and inclusive for people who are undecided in the middle. So this big chunk of 60% of undecided people when it's about transformation and change. Yeah, and I'd just like to comment on these uh, subsidies, right? I mean, we, we, we don't need to get into all sort of tax subsidies, et cetera, argument, because it's very technical. But I think the point of costing, right? At some point today, we can can speak about a bit bit more. But also the fact that these are subsidies that could be used for something on the totally other end of the spectrum, they could be used to invest in, um, you know, resilient infrastructure, in trees, in poverty reduction, right? So it's kind of this double effect almost, or well, it's a, <laughs> given the interlinkages and the systems effect, it's actually an accelerator effect even, right? So that's why it's particularly important. And I totally understand that you actually went and checked these figures because it, they're very, very little known, right? I mean, a lot of people just have no idea about that. Which, by the way, I have to say is, is one of the big strengths of your book, is that there's not a single figure given in that book, which is not sourced within the book. And when you, you can, I mean, to check it, you don't have to to make 10 hours of Google. You just go to the link and and you find it. So so that helped me a lot. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you said it because, you know, like I'm an 80% person. Alice is the 120% person here in terms of being like on thing. And she put a lot of effort and, you know, like put a lot of pressure on our whole project that this is uh, scientifically good and great and it's acknowledged. So it was worth Well, And I think the challenge, thank you. And thank you both. But I think the challenge, of course, was because we wanted to write a very accessible book, right? We didn't want to write something that is interesting for academics only or where you have to have a degree in whatever climate science or whatever it is, right? And so, I think I, did, I do think we, we struck the right balance, and I'm really glad you picked this up. And I think for people that aren't who aren't interested, I mean, this is in the very end of the book. You don't even need to go there. But if you want to, if you're interested, you actually can. I'd like to address a part of your book which was very, very interesting and eye-opening to me, which is the frameworks, the way that we structure our word. And you've mentioned uh, just uh, seconds ago, Claudia, the, your, your path in the startups and in, in the books I have beside me, you have some frameworks that are useful for the startups. I mean, you have lean, zero to one, all of those, of those elements. And th those are the one on you. And I didn't know about the framework, which are somehow built and embedded in our society and the way we, we work. And there's one with a, with a funny name, which I would like to, to take as first, which is the Mickey Mouse thinking. Mm. Can you define Mickey Mouse thinking? You know, that's something I learned from Alice, but I think uh, I'll share that. I'll take that question because for me, this was also eye-opening. You know, like coming from the corporate side, of course, we as corporates always had the feeling we are anyway doing to contributing to society. We're doing some CSR projects and maybe we want we plant some trees somewhere. And yeah, but in reality, my business, my day was structured around 
maximizing profits around running the operation, getting additional revenues. So 90% of what I did was the big Mickey Mouse heads, the round in the middle. And then I did 5% on economic sustainability and 5% on social sustainability and more when we were under pressure because somebody said, hey, you're not doing good, you have to do something. Most of the companies, and that's reality, and I'm, I'm speaking it out, a lot of you of the company leaders will not admit it, are not about, you know, like contributing to society. I was lucky that I worked in a company where I had top leadership that was always a bit more on this side than others, but still way not enough. So it was focus on economic and then small things like the Mickey Mouse ears, social and ecological thinking. And then um, some 20 years ago, 15 years ago, this triple bottom line thinking started to emerge. John Elkington wrote this book about triple bottom line. Maybe it's only 10 years ago. I don't know. But it's like you have to bring social, economic and ecological perspective together. And in the middle where they interlink, that's basically where the best spot for you is. But it's also, again, a view that separates economic, social, and ecological dimension. So we are not there yet. And even John Elkington himself, he just last year wrote a book uh, where he described that he recalled this triple bottom line concept. It's the first basically scientific concept that was recalled by the author because he said, actually, with this concept, he gave companies an excuse that they still can continue focus on profits and just do a bit where they interlink. So actually the thinking Alice and me promote and a lot of people who are in the sustainability field is the economy needs to be embedded in the social environment and the ecological environment. And only if as a society we get there, we will be able to strive in the future. And I studied economics like uh, or business administration economics like Alice did. And our thinking in our mid-40s, you can't see it, you can't hear it, but I tell you now. So 20 years we were trained to think of this profit-maximizing thinking. The purpose of business is business, and this thinking goes to you. So that's what you do all day, and opening up and saying, maybe the economic theories we grew up with are wrong. Maybe the science, the Friedman thinking, that was our prevailing economic thinking, is not suitable for the future, was a wake-up call. And there are a few economists that I can recommend to all of you. It's Marina Mazzucato, it's Kate Revers, it's Carola Perez, who call for a different way of looking at the economy. And their concepts are really eye-opening, especially for people our age that thought that the thing we learned at business school is the mantra, basically. Because it's not. It has to change in order for us as a society to continue striving. And just to add, I mean, and yet it still is the mantra. I mean, I, I teach, uh, I've been teaching business students for, la for the last 10 years, but BA and MBA, and I actually only teach international students. And I always ask them, so why do I actually take my class, which is around sustainable business and management for the future? And they, you know, sometimes say, well, because there, you know, isn't a similar course in my home university, but also because they've really still learned today what Claudia just described, right? That the business of business is just business. So this, this old Mickey Mouse model, completely forgetting that we as individuals, but of course we as businesses also depend, well, we, we entirely depend on nature. We depend on the planet services, right? As we describe also in the book. And I mean, I think the other thing is economics and business, I mean, it's, it's often, I would, I would even say misunderstood as a science, right? Because in the end, it's all about human behavior. And yes, you can explain part of it, but not all of it, right? And so these mental models that we have and that are really sort of hammered into you when you go through university just don't work. And it takes a lot of courage, I think, from, you know, leaders like Claudia to say, you know what, <laughs> try it, test it. It's not working. Let's do it differently. 
well, there are many elements in what you just said, which I'd like to jump on. First, it's the first time I hear expressed that clearly that the triple bottom, you know, when you say triple bottom, I see a Venn diagram perfectly aligned exactly. with three circles. Yeah, that, that's what I've connected them, yeah. That's the way I learned it in my environmental school. So uh, to, to me, that is triple bottom. I think the best definition for muggles like me, which are don't understand the matter, which never studied a business uh, in any forms, is in the old model, you would be looking for profit. And the purpose of an enterprise is to look for profit. And in the new model that we shall establish, we should be looking at a societal issue and try to solve that issue. And if you solve it, then profit is going to be a reward or an after effect of solving the issue. Which leads me to what you just said about mental models, about... 99% depends, 97%, 99% of our decisions are totally unconscious. It's our mental models, our inner structure we are built with and hammered with in university to, to take your, your expression. So how do we change that? How can we disrupt such a strong structure? Yeah, and I think this is our basic call at the beginning of the book. We need to open up. We need to collaborate. We need to look at things from various perspectives. If we all stay in our function, in our silos, or so business people in their business function, I don't know, technical people in their function, water people in the water field, the energy people in the energy field, we will not have a chance to look at a holistic picture. And we need to get together and, and see these things. So luckily, there is a lot of movement in terms of system thinking in terms of looking at things from various perspectives, trying to find multi-solving solutions. But the basic and the key is we need to open up our mindset because this is this sentence, outer change is not possible without inner change. So it all starts with us personally. So it starts with how do I look at the world? Do I accept that there are other views that maybe are totally contradictive to my view? And do I start to listen? The process we had in our book, Alice and Me, we came at it from very different perspectives. So I have to admit, in the first draft of the book, I wrote a lot about how cool the World Economic Forum and Amazon is. So all sustainability people here will say, like, how come you do that? But it's because in some dimensions, they're really great. So the technological things Amazon, you know, like created in terms of innovation, they are incredible. But, you know, like just looking at the technological innovation, you tend to forget what they do with taxes, how they treat their workers, how whatever. So it was a process also. And even I was already at the stage of thinking more sustainable than I did like five years ago. But still, you know, like reflecting on why did you say in this point Amazon is cool? And we had a lot of fights. Should it stay in or not? And discussions. And in some points, I convinced Alice here it makes sense and others She said, no way it can stay in. And I accepted, yeah, there is something I cannot do. And I take Amazon because it's a very polarizing thing. We had a lot of things, not about Amazon, where we had these things. So if you look at things from different perspectives, then there is different ways out of the, of the system. And I think the first step to changing a system, to accepting that things maybe are not what they seem to you, is opening up to people from different perspectives and look at it together. So For example, the homo economicus, I think we have it in the book, the mental model that shapes our economic thinking. The person is greedy and only maximizing their own income. If you talk to behavioral scientists, they will immediately tell you, no way. You mentioned it also in your comment before, no way. So why is this the prevailing model in our economic thinking? If we let different disciplines work together, a different model might come out and a different way of looking at things. And I think this opening up 
is the key from my point of view. And it's also like, I always like to do calls of action, calls to action when I'm doing these kind of talks. It's if the only thing you take away today is starting to look at different perspectives, starting to speak with one person at the opposite spectrum of your opinion, then every single second I invested in this talk was worth it. So I urge all of you, open up, start talking to people who look at the world in a different view. It's paying off. It might be painful, but it's paying off. Thank you, Claudia. I'd just like to also come back to, you know, your point on paradigm shifts. And I completely agree with Claudia. It's really this moving out of silos and co-creating and, and really being open. But I think a bit more practically, like, how do you get there? I think it's partly role models. It's partly showing people how it's done, that it can be done, right? That that don't that sort of bury their head in the sand, when, you know, in, in the face of all this doom and gloom they, they keep hearing about. But I think it's also about this experience, right? I mean, we all know that learning, you know, is partly visual. It's partly something you read. It's partly something you look at. But when you experience something, that's, that's a much more powerful, much deeper way of learning. And, you know, coming back to nature, you know, we talked about the triple bottom line and the relationship between the environmental, the social and the, and the economic pillars. I mean, I think to an extent, we just we don't need to look back far. I mean, just a generation ago or two generations ago, for sure, you know, it was normal to be connected to nature, to spend time in nature, to realize that you're actually taking from nature, right? And you you were, you know, going to sleep when it got dark. And, and, and in many places in the world, this is actually still the case, right? I mean, I think we, we, we forget that. And so, of course, there's an aside on, on, on what we can learn, right, from people that live in so-called not developed or least less developed countries, right? But I mean, that's an aside. So I think in a way, it's a, we do certainly need a paradigm shift. But in a way, we also just need to remember how we used to do things. It's about, we, you know, we didn't used to build washing machines and refrigerators so that they would deliberately break after two years. We didn't plan obsolescence, right? into whatever we built and designed and sold. We, we thought quality was a good thing, right? And just frankly, most companies these days do not necessarily invest in quality for commercial reasons. So, you know, cooking your own food, whatever, without too many additives, exercising. So it's a paradigm shift, yes, but it's also just looking a little bit uh, into the past. It doesn't sound very cool, but I do think uh, we, we, some of the solutions for the future we'll find in the past. There's an incredible story in your book about the light bulbs. I'm not going to sidetrack you now with that story. Read the book, read it. I mean, I, it was like, when I read that, I said, again, I didn't believe you. To me, it was so obvious that it was made up. I checked, but you're right. It's, <laughs> it's true. So it, it's incredible. Coming back to what you said about experiencing, um, there are two ways to experience stuff. There's uh, the experiencing itself and there's the story, because a good story is another way to experience stuff, and it's not the way, probably the best way to convince people. And I have the feeling that the story we hear quite a lot is it's progress versus nature. It is being green versus being modern. And you hear that very regularly, which is very interesting again with your book. And I promise to the people listening to that, I'm not selling the book. I don't have a commission on it. It's just, it, it's so eye-opening. What you are saying is that we can continue to grow sustainably. It's not a growth versus sustainability. So that is an, an important thing. And, and one of the most clever things and clever approach I've read in your book is this. If we keep saying save the planet, then it's only for green activists. But the planet is going to leave. The planet doesn't care if it's a bit 
hotter, a bit cooler, that the planet is there since millions of years and will be there for another millions of years. But if we say, save ourselves, that's actually the reality. And all of a sudden, we're all part of that story. So how do we reshape the stories we tell around sustainability that, so that everybody understands that it starts with us? Yeah, I think I'm really glad that you got this out of the book because this is a very key point we're making that, yes, it's great to sort of to care about the environment, right? With all your heart and to be an environmentalist and to sort of protect nature for the sake of protecting nature and for, you know, ethical reasons, for reasons relating to your values. That's wonderful. And a lot of people actually work that way, right? We talked about human behavior and the psychology before. But a lot of people do not work that way. Or sometimes they also don't have the, cannot afford, so to speak, right, to work that way. They might be sort of having very different concerns. And because it's always sort of easier to speak from a privileged level where we all are. And I think we want to be conscious of that. But in the end, it's about saving ourselves. And this is, again, where nature and humans are linked. We wouldn't be there if it wasn't for nature and for an intact environment. It's, it's the very, the very fact that the climate has been stable for the last, you know, 10,000 years enabled us to live the way we did. And, you know, there's, there's very interesting research that tells us that for the longest time, until quite recently, it actually served us humans quite well to abuse nature, right? To to use the nature. And when I talk about nature services, perhaps let's just make clear what it is. So that's, you know, providing food, providing water, providing fuel, as in, you know, wood and so on, but also regulating certain things, clearing the water, clearing the air, regulating the climate, crop pollination, all of that are services. You can think of that as services, right? That the planet has been providing to us humans for free. And we've been taking that. And for the longest time, that benefited us. We are now much healthier, wealthier, and, you know, in a much better position than, you know, our ancestors were in many, many ways. We live much longer, but we're now starting to damage ourselves. We are, for example, air pollution, I think is a very good example because it kills 20,000 people each day globally. That's about 7 million per year. And we forget that. We don't count these sort of costs of unsustainability, right? People are worried about what it costs to invest in sustainability. But um, I mean, that's that's totally, I think, the wrong argument. Well, yeah, you should calculate those costs, but they're much lower than the cost of unsustainability. And then I'd like to also pick up where you started, because you said, well, we're not saying it's green versus growth. And in the end, it's about societal progress, about, you know, making the world better, healthier for everyone, not just for, you know, rich people in rich countries, because this there's, of course, a clear risk, right, that this is how it's going. And then just as an aside, I mean, the, the concept of the GDP, when it was designed, I think, in the, in the 1930s, roughly, right, for the U.S. Congress, Simon Kuznets, who was the person that, that you know, worked with the U.S. government on that, himself said, this is not about measuring societal progress. It's about measuring economic output. And that's it. But somehow, sometimes along this way, we've started equating societal progress with economic progress. And that's just absurd. Yeah, I think that's really absurd. And now it really comes back to making us understand that we all are all much better off when everyone is happy, when everyone, you know, is, is, is peaceful. And when we have a, a, a well, a, a, a planet that is able to continue to deliver the services that we depend on. Regarding this element of, of growth, which, uh, I mean, we could use the services and you, you speak about the donut model and, and going to the boundaries of the donut and maybe passing those boundaries and then, then we're in big trouble. You share a figure uh, about 
how much it would bring to the world economy if we were to fulfill the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And you give that figure of $12 trillion. So it is an angle and a system thinking which is not that often put forward. I mean, coming from the water side, we always talk, I mean, every single pitch of a startup nowadays starts with those billions of people who don't have access to water. And we speak about that and say, we have to do good and to solve that. But we never go the next step and say, hey, by the way, if we achieve all of that, we are doing good on an even fully different scale. So how do you put that another spot? So I came across this figure about two years ago. I think it was the United Nations uh, publishing it. And it says like the business opportunity fulfilling the 17 sustainable development goals is this $12 trillion. And I was like, you like, wow, this is cool. You know, like I'm a business person. Now we talk business. Now I get it why I should do this. You know, like you could do it for moral reasons, which is nice. You could do it for, yeah, maybe to, you know, like make your employees or your customers happy. But this is a huge business opportunity additionally. And today I came across some interesting quote uh, and I just want to read it to you. It's like, what would be if the products and services we create do not destroy the future, but enable them, you know, like looking at business opportunities, what can we do to contribute to our future, to make a better future possible for all of us? And I like this positive thinking of it, this positive looking at, hey, let's not, you know, like we humans are creative. We have all it takes. We have the creative behavior it takes, but we just need to change the outcome. Where do we want to use our creativity for? And we could at the same level as we could use it to harm the planet, we could use it to, you know, like save the planet. Water is a good example. Energy is a great example. Food is an example. Healthcare. There are a lot of things that we could do differently that open up new opportunities that would make people and companies investing in this uh, field thrive. And additionally, the planet or the other way around, the planet would thrive and the people. And it goes back to the thing I mentioned in the beginning, economy should be embedded in the society and in our ecological system of the planet. And then if we achieve that, it's a win, 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 win. You know, like everybody wins. This is, I think, the thinking. If we get in there and, you know, like get the positive vibes of it, then it changes the whole picture. It's not doomsday is near and everything is doomed to fail and we're going to die. But it's like, wow, look at the opportunities. What could we do? We are so creative. We are 7 billion creative people on this planet. What could we do to make it a better world for all of us? And it might sound naive, but it's not. It's like the stories we need to tell and the stories, we see it every day that people like to listen to positive stories. So let's tell them the positive stories. Let's tell them the nice, beautiful, shiny stories without being naive. Well, not just those stories, right? I think I think it's also about identifying those stories where actually these win-win-win-win-wins can be created, right? I mean, the book, we call it multi-solving along with some people from the MIT. That's really the idea to show people what's in it for them economically, so socially, you know, for their well-being, whatever. And I just wanted to say one thing because, you know, there is obviously there is a clear tension between businesses, you know, and the environment. I mean, let's face it, right? That's there, yeah? But well, and I think that's partly why, you know, we're sometimes being challenged by people, by, you know, by great people, including, you know, from the Extinction Rebellion that say, well, it's not about, not just about ensuring sustainability. Sustainability is not enough, right? If we sustain what we have today, that's actually wrong. It's about regeneration. So in a way, we have to be even more ambitious, right? We want businesses to regenerate the planet. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe that's for next book, but. <laughs> 
I don't get what you just said. Uh, tensions between business and environment. Come on, each time there's a, a green day, everybody changes their Twitter picture and puts a green banner on it. So how can it be that there's a tension between businesses and environment? Ah, my favorite topic, the greenwashing one. Okay, so uh, of course, you know, like there is, I, I think you liked this quote when you're writing up front, it's like walk the talk and not tweet the tweet. So the negative part of that, there is a lot of awareness on ecological thinking and Currently, unfortunately, sustainability, at least in the region where we come from, is mainly defined as ecological sustainability. Okay, we, diversity is maybe another topic, but inequality, for example, is not there anymore in, in, the, in the political discussions in the countries where we come from. But you know, like when we talk about sustainability and this ecological greenwashing, I'm so green, my CEO is driving the bike, whatever. Yeah, you can do that. It's okay. But only if you first did your work, if you first, you know, like, manage your emissions, if you first manage your social social duties that you have towards society. And then if you say, you who I put my CEO on a bike and he rides on his bike to work, then you can do it. It's not a problem. But I think the problem comes in when you start communicating how green you are without even knowing your ecological or social balance, then you have a problem. And maybe it's accepted still now, but consumers and employees and everybody involved in society gets more intelligent on the whole topic and you will not get through with this anymore. And additionally, and that's the good part, there's also loud calls for regulation because I come from the company side and companies normally don't do this because, you know, like they're nice. They need to have a benefit out of it or they need to be punished. So I think one thing that we should also do, all of us, either in our business functions or in our civil society roles is call for regulation. Businesses probably will not call for regulation, but we as people living in our countries should call for stricter regulations to force companies to fulfill and not only talk the walk, but walk the talk. I fully agree on that. And I just on the greenwashing, I mean, it's pro probably one of the points where there's a bit of tension also between Claudia and me, well, not bad tension, you know, constructive tension, because what I've observed definitely is with this, you know, renewed interest in climate action, in environmental action. By the, and I say renewed interest because, you know, there was there were waves. There have been waves in the early 90s, right, when we went to school. But anyway, there is there's a really important big wave led by young people, facilitated by social media, etc. And this is this is great. But it also means that really, I mean, even sort of companies that really never really cared about sustainability or don't you didn't even make attempts to understand it now want to ride the train right so i do think there's much more greenwashing there's much more absurd forms of uh, green communication i mean there are some ridiculous examples that you know we can show visually but but perhaps describing them is not so easy and i think there's some very obvious forms of greenwashing right when when you know oil companies i don't know boast about clearing the air, but there's also much more subtle forms of greenwashing, right? When they deliberately leave out, um, you know, the social vis-a-vis -vis the environmental, when they count their emissions, but actually forget to, you know, include their flights. And by the way, it's not just uh, companies that do that. It's also universities. I mean, I think they're coming from a different angle, but th this is happening across all institutions. You know, it's the sort of the national calculations, just leave a few sectors out, We, we can go into the different types of, of greenwashing, but I think it's really something we need to be very careful about. We need to regulate, we need to call out, and we need to really, well, basically find ways to, to well, to ban, yeah, and, and to create backlashes for, for the word greenwashers. But on the other hand, also, you know, like celebrate 
successful moves in this direction. We are on a global transition. Also, companies have to change and transition. And if they make important moves, let's not kill them. You're not green enough. If they're really doing significant progress, then let's celebrate and say, great, you're doing great stuff. Let's talk about it to be an example for others. And I think that's the line we need to, you know, like keep not bashing everything for greenwashing, but not letting everybody allowed to do talk green and not doing anything. And that's the role we as communities in our countries have. It's about managing the incentive. It's another topic I discussed with Florian Heaven, Julian Kolbel. Uh, they were giving the example of the tobacco industry, which is a scene stock by excellence. And if you're a, a tobacco company and you do slightly better, you have no reward because you're still part of the tobacco industry. So you have no chance that someone sees that, that positive aspect. So I know that good enough is not going to save us, but sometimes the big changes are made of, of small steps. In what you just said, not that I try to oppose you, but I see kind of a disconnect in what, what you said, Claudia. You said that people want to listen to positive stories. And um, I'm not sure about that in terms of, of brain wiring. You know, we, we tend to remember much more the trains which are late than the trains that arrive on time. But still, we, we love the stories, but maybe they, they don't get imprinted. And on the other end of, of that circle, I see the approach of Extinction Rebellion, if I If I get it right, in each time it comes in the news, it's because they were pointing out the doom and gloom a bit because you have to impress people. So are these two approaches uh, antagonist or complementary? It has to be both because, you know, like I'm doing marketing for 20 years. It's target groups. Different people get uh, attracted by different things. If you tell me the world is going down, I will not move a single thing because, you know, like I'm, I might die anyway. If you tell me, hey, we can do it, I'm on board. Alice maybe is in the middle somewhere and you on a total different angle. So it's like we have to have the right messages for the right groups and one message doesn't fit all. It's the same as we explain in the book. One measure will not solve all our problems. We need a silver buckshot and not a silver bullet to solve all things. And that's it. for me, it's exactly the same with communications, but it's my side. So I'll also give Alice the side. And I love the tension we have in our discussions because these tensions are actually bringing us forward. Exactly. And I think that that's true for you know the two of us or the three of us now, but it's true also for society. I mean, we, we need this engagement and we need, to, we need to discuss the wicked issues and the big problems. But one thing I learned when working with Claudia is... Because, you know, for me, you know, who's been working in sustainability for over 20 years and who very early on renounced sort of the classical business side, I mean, I'm sometimes blinded to other people's reality, obviously, right? Like we all are, even though I try to keep the bigger picture in mind. And what I really learned is we need to pick, in, in German, we have to say, we have to pick people up where they are, right? I don't know if they, they use it in English exactly like that. This is something we've, we've learned now in this short period that we've actually been, been marking book and getting feedback. It needs to resonate with people where they currently are and if you if you bash them if you say you're bad because you're driving a car or even two or you're flying on holiday you lose them yeah you really lose them but i do think it's really important to keep this balance and to uh, make sure that these very uncomfortable truths are heard and seen yeah some people refer to this as you know apocalypse porn which can also then of course lead to certain fatigue right And also there's, of course, the saying, you know, good news is bad news and only bad news is good news. And I think that's true to an extent. But then in, in terms of what motivates people, I mean, we all know, we all love praise, right? We all love reinforcement of positive action. That's why I think we really need to be, be better than, and we need to start very, very early, early on at school. Yeah, I mean, and I think 
coming back to nature and nature's role and how we've lost it and how some kids basically only know it from the internet or their gadgets, right? I think it's, it's this basic ecology has to make its way back in. And I think that will sensitize people to things like greenwashing and, and many of the other things that we uh, talked about before. And then lastly, because, you know, we're, well, Claudia is certainly not business bashing, but, but, you know, perhaps some of us sometimes are. One thing that I think is really interesting, because I ask my students a lot, so what's the economic contribution that businesses make? And very often it takes a while for them to realize, well, actually they're paying taxes and providing jobs, right? And these are, of course, really important aspects, functions in society that sometimes are forgotten when we talk about economic sustainability because yeah? economic sustainability isn't the same as financial sustainability in terms of enduring and you know keeping the business up and running and we keep coming back to this you know all of these being connected those um three sort of bottom lines some people would actually argue that there's a fourth one there's culture too uh, which of course then links in with these other bits but yeah i mean lots to do really i think still <laughs> Regarding these elements of, of taxes and jobs, and I'm not sidetracking here again, so I, I encourage people to read that in the book, but you, you have a full part of the book where you explain if you invest so much in, in such an industry, how many full-time employees do you gain out of that? What is the return on investment? Of course, it should favor sustainable approaches. So leaving that as an Easter egg for people that read the book, when you come to that, think of me. I have a last question for you in this in this deep dive, and it has to do with the butterfly effect. We've discussed about the systemic approach, how regulation shall help, how businesses shall change, how all of that on the macro level, there's something to do. I'd like to look at the totally other end of the spectrum, myself going to buy my groceries or making the simple stuff of my life every day. What is the message to us every day? How can we contribute to, to that, that big movement? You show some elements in the book, but I'd like to have your personal almost gut feeling. I do it first, I say, start thinking, start opening up and, you know, like just make conscious decisions and it's, it will be step by step. Maybe first look at what kind of chocolate you buy next time, you know, like what kind of bag, it's small steps. We cannot change our behavior at once, but we can change it day by day. And the small steps in the long run, if many of us do them, will contribute if on the other side, regulation kicks in and also doesn't allow that a lot of things happen that are out there that, you know, like are still choices for us that shouldn't be. What we try to do in our book is in every chapter we have, what can you do, what can organizations do and what uh, governments can do in order to contribute to one of our sustainability puzzle pieces. And I think the puzzle piece most close to most of us is the one of sustainable consumption. So I think that's the one where you could start. And the first thing is, if you buy things, think of if you really need them. So don't buy at all if you don't need. And then if you buy, change to sustainable choices. And then if you, you know, like repair it, reduce all this stuff. So I think this, this mantra helps you and it makes it easy. So, but the first and most important step is what do you need to be happy? Do you need all the stuff you have and you buy? Before leaving you the, the floor, Alice, just to pick what you, what you said, Claudia, about uh, what you can do, what organizations can do, what governments can do. That's the, the first page of every chapter of the book. So that's really, you, you don't even need to read the book, just read the first page of each chapter and you have already some, some matter. Please, sorry, I didn't want well, to interrupt. Well, shout out, thank you for mentioning that. We should, out, should shout out to our graphic designer who we worked with, Francisca Viviane Sobel um, in Berlin. She did a great job, I think, of helping us to draw this basically and, and, and you know, summarize something rather complex and, and, and big uh, into something that's quite accessible again. Just linking in with, with what Claudia said, I think... It's really this, this in terms of consumption, it's really buying only what you love, 
Yeah. And stopping to think that more is more, right? This because a lot of people aren't happy with all this stuff piling up in their homes that they then have to get rid of or recycle or put, you know, wherever. Um, because recycling isn't the answer, right? Re recycling is one of many tools, many R's, right? Like the reuse, repair, redesign, etc., that we have. But it's really buying quality, investing in quality, because the moment this kicks in, this whole argument of I can't afford, you know, a better shirt because I'm a student doesn't hold anymore, right? Just buy one or two or three shirts rather than 10 in a season, right? Or buying, you know, shoes. I mean, just buy some shoes, try to buy shoes, try to find shoes that don't break easily. Um, yeah, you will be, you'll be much happier. You don't have to have them fixed, you know, and, and they'll, you know, make you feel much better. I think this is a key one. But then, of course, one, one of the elements that people, because a lot of people, I think, know about the fact that, you know, meat consumption is a big deal, right? Food waste is a really, really big deal. I think that's perhaps not known so widely. But what people don't always know is that building insulation, that that really makes a difference. And quite a lot of people know at some point in their life, build or renovate and this makes a big difference and then of course the biggest lever right that we all have is to, is to keep those fossil fuels in the ground and also there to not fall victim to greenwashing when someone tells you you know gas is green and then finally i think also not fall victim to the thinking that technology is going to save it you know save us i mean technology is a hugely important part of the puzzle and always has been right but not every technology is good just because it's a technology, right? And what is a technology anyway? I think that's really key. So the one keyword I would leave with people, invest in quality and buy only what you love. And it's also about recognizing your power to influence others, right? To influence your peers. I think this is huge. This is really, really important. You can do this individually, privately, but you can also you know, do that in the way you choose your job, right? People sometimes ask me like, you know, how do you get a job in sustainability? And then I ask them, well, there's about, you know, a hundred different or a thousand different types of jobs in sustainability. Which one do you want, right? So I think it's really, like Claudia said, to start thinking sustainability and regeneration, regeneration and resilience in whatever you do. So that's somehow the fourth pillar you were alluding to before, this cultural element. Uh, not that we have all to become minimalists, but I mean... Watch Marie Kondo on Netflix. It's going to help maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you have to start somewhere. If we embed that in all of us, then probably we are a step further. I have to be conscious of your time. I tell you, I wish you write a second book because that would give me another opportunity to ask you the other 2000 questions. I, I, I couldn't today. I propose you to switch to the very rapid questions, which is a, an adaptation of my usually rapid fire questions. It's going to be even shorter and you can have very short answers. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So my first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? You're on mute, Claude, so I'll start. Um, for me, um, I mean, I, I was going to say the because I really loved it. And I wanted to say that, you know, I, I had sort of this project in my mind. I've been writing for years. and But it was actually when Claudia came in, when, when this collaboration started between us, that it started to become really fun and exciting. Yeah, So the despairing partnership, the coming at it from different angles, that was really, really important. And so I'll, I'll just leave out the other project that I wanted to talk about, because this is actually really key, I think. So thank you, Claudia. Yeah, for me, it's everything. I, I cut it short. Everything where I can contribute to shaping a meaningful future, whatever it is. And I, I'm lucky and happy that I find a lot of these projects along my way. What's the favorite part of your current job? Actually, you know, 
that there are so many opportunities. We are looking at sustainable reverse logistic chains now. I never thought that this is something I'm into. But after, you know, like talking with Ali's understanding circularity better, I see with my tech startups actually taking it from a different angle, I can really make a change. And this is what I love. You like putting together the pieces, puzzle pieces, and then saying, wow, I learned something about uh, circularity. I'm a tech person. How can I put this together? And, you know, like make a venture out of it. This is what I love. And for me, I mean, for me, it's the mix. It's because I, you know, I always wear several hats at the same time. And it's just like we started, Antoine, right? This mix between the more sort of activist side, the policy side, the big picture thinking side, also the very high powered influence that you can have with a political body like the, you know, European Commission. But then at the same time, talking to someone in a, in a developing country may not have had any education, for example, and, and, you know, understanding what you have in common. So it's really, it's really this mix that I think is the most, uh, it's my fa the favorite part of my jobs. And I'm going to take a shortcut to my last question. Would you have someone to recommend me to come on that microphone? Take John Elkinton and ask him for his triple bottom line and why he discarded it. I love the story. It's in his book, Green Swans. If you haven't read it, it's a total recommendation. And he's very responsive on LinkedIn. So I got in touch with him on LinkedIn and it's really interesting. And he's a great person to tell you the whole sustainability story. So if you have the opportunity, try to get him. I'll give it a chance. <laughs> I'd actually mention women, right? And I, I think there's so many one could mention. And, and I'd be very happy to send you some suggestions. But I mean, start with the three ones that we mentioned in the book, right? Carlotta Perez and Kate Roworth. I mean, these kind of people, there's so many great thinkers out there. Marina Matsukato. Of course, yeah. Sorry, I forgot her. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for, for your, your time, both of you. Usually I tell people where to, to follow you, but I would say that here the, the obvious is to have a look at, at, at your book. I think it's available on Lulu and on all the good platforms. I think that's the usual saying to say it's, uh, it's quite everywhere. Uh, again, I repeat myself, it's a page turner and it's, uh, it's an eye opener. So uh, thank you both. Thank you, Antoine, for your time and the really tough questions sometimes. I totally enjoyed discussing and it also like built again another perspective into my way of thinking. So thanks for that. Yeah, and we'd love to do another book and discuss it with you. And, and I think for anyone who is interested, there is more on our website, which is www sustainability-puzzle.org. And we would love to hear from you, you know, any thoughts and ideas you have, any feedback you have on the book. And really thanks, Antoine. I think it was one of the sort of most enjoyable interviews, podcasts I've ever done. So thank you and hope to stay in touch. The links to what you just uh, shared are in the episode notes if you're listening to this so that you have the direct link to it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.